Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack Chuang, and uh, welcome back. Oh, I see that my uh, audio transcription app actually spelled my name correctly. That's pretty amazing. I think it's learning, which is pretty scary. Hey, if you're uh, visiting my podcast for the first time, thank you very much and welcome. If you're a student of psychology, I have a whole library of lectures that hopefully will not put you to sleep and might help you pass and do well in your classes. I've had feedback before that some of my lectures might be helpful. For those of you studying for entrance exams, like the graduate record exam for graduate school in psychology, or perhaps for the uh, medical school entrance exam called the MCAT, there's a behavioral science section. So hopefully... Uh, my lectures that I have, you have to scroll way back to last April, and you'll find uh, a lot of them listed right there. So in the later podcast, I've just been choosing topics at will to talk about, and oftentimes during the first portion in most recent uh, podcasts, I've been just talking about what's on my mind and then take a short break and then discuss the topic of the day that you see in the title for today's podcast. So what's been happening with me? Well, I think I get a little bit too obsessed over my devices, I, especially right now, the microphone. I don't know, all of a sudden I've become obsessed with which microphone to use. So I'm just going to have to calm down and just use what I have, what I most recently bought, and just leave it there. I don't think it's healthy for me to keep it's probably not good for the environment either to keep taking these electronics back and buying another one. And also, I've just been having this urge to want to buy a computer, but then the damn company Apple's coming out with new MacBooks this year, I hope, which means I'm sort of in that in-between. You know, It's kind of like buying the last of the design of a particular car when you know the new redesign is coming out. And so should you get the year three version of a car or the first year of the redesign. Anyway, I guess you can make an argument either way. So uh, today I'm a little bit tired. I We drove from Dallas to Houston, and uh, I know that's not a big deal. It's not that long a drive, but stayed up very late last night preparing my class for this week. And so, uh, but I had a very interesting weekend. We went up for my younger sister's 49.99999 year old birthday. Apparently she's in denial that she's turning 50. Wait, oh, she might listen to this. Okay, happy birthday, sis. And um, I'm sure anyone who reaches a certain milestone age-wise will be a, a bit more reflective about it. But I enjoy being 54 now. And uh, we'll see how I feel when I have hit 60. I was just thinking, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, that I'm not that far from retirement age, which is an interesting kind of revelation. Anyway, so the weekend was nice. We had everyone in the household, my two sisters and the nieces and nephew, including my father and my daughter. We've all either had two immunization shots for COVID or at least one. So I still wore my mask when I could. Um, so, uh, but it turned out okay. 
turned out fine. And uh, interesting development. Um, before the visit, my dad told me that his uh, Samsung smartwatch, I think it's called the Samsung Galaxy Watch, that my sisters and I pitched in together to buy him one year, uh, last year, as a gift. And and I think he enjoyed using it, but from the onset, he complained that it was a little bit too big, too, too, big, too heavy. And I said, you know, I got it from Costco. I can just take it back and exchange it, or or we can shop for a different model. And he kept insisting, oh, I'll try it out. So right before this trip, he said that the watch died. And I thought, oh, that's not good. Okay. And so I kind of took his word for it. I didn't really test it out. I was boxing it all up, getting the receipt ready, take back to Costco because they have a really good return policy, you know. And then my sister said, um, you sure he didn't, sure the battery's just not dead or whatever? So I just put on the charger and it started charging. Then once it had a little bit more charge, it turned right back on and it was, it was basically fine. But uh, my dad used that as, an, as a reason to, I think, try to, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, get rid of the watch. He just doesn't like it in terms of, uh, you know, just the feel of it. And he said, oh, you know, why don't you just uh, wear it for a couple of days and see how it feels? I'm like, okay, I can smell a hand-me-down coming. So I guess I'll be shopping for a new lighter um, fitness watch for him. I think he likes counting steps and he likes to see the heart rate monitoring. Um, I think he enjoyed talking over the phone using the watch. I thought he... I think he thought that was amusing, but it's not a core function that he really needs. And all of his peers, which are these retired upper 70s, early 80s aged Taiwanese Americans, they are all Apple people. Okay, so they have iPhones, they have Apple Watches, you know, they've done pretty well in life. So, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. They all drive uh, Lexus SUVs or Toyota Camrys, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's pretty much a Toyota convention whenever they get together for Tai Chi. And I, I used to join them quite a bit when I was uh, staying with my father for a bit. So, But he, he's really anti-Apple. And I asked him one day, well, why are you so anti-Apple? And the main reason was because everybody else had it. <laughs> so yeah, I think he has this little independence streak in him to stick with an Android phone. But then he constantly complains about it for not having enough memory or whatever it is going on with the phone. So that's why we got the Samsung, because it was uh, it works on his phone. Anyway, back to square one. So now I have a third watch. I'm really, I used to be a really big watch person when I was younger. Just obsessed, you know, I tend to obs have my waves of, of uh, obsessions. So maybe it's not a good thing that I keep flicking my wrist just to make the watch come on to see what time it is and see how many steps I've taken, even though I have, I'm not even walking around. All right, so I guess just another thing. I, I, I don't think I want to return it. I think I'll just hold on to it. Okay, what else is going on? I think, um, yeah, I think I'm out of stories. I think uh, things have calmed down just a bit. Uh, oh, in Texas right now, it's uh, wildflower season, blue bonnets and others. So um, it's a bit startling when we don't make this drive as frequently as we used to from between Dallas and Houston that from one drive to the next, you know, if, if we, you know, it's been a couple months, totally drastically different scenery, 
um, very, very different. Okay, so I think I'm going to take a break, take a swig of my little bit too hot tea, and let's discuss this topic of the day I think you might be interested in. Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, if you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash psych explained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. All right, now that I'm hydrated, let's get on with our topic of the day. Um, real quick note, though. I just recently created a Discord channel. Actually, what do you call those things? I guess it's a server, but that sounds a little bit too technical. It's basically a, a place where we can have discussions. So look for the link in the description and feel free to join in. And we can have a discussion about how we can use this Discord channel. There, I just gave it another name in terms of what to do with it, whether I need to break it up into different groups or just have a discussion about where this podcast can go. So it's a great place just to socialize. And I didn't want to use the other company. You know, starts with an F, ends with a K. Okay, you should know that I was recording for about 20 minutes 
on my topic of the day. And then my my heart and my mind just petered out and I just stopped it. I could edit it, crop it, record a little bit more at the end, but I'm going to talk about what's on my mind um, that I have a little bit more interest in. So it did not start. I'm just processing here with you. Okay, so basically I want to talk about how the last year, 2020, the pandemic, changed how I teach. As you know, and you may know, that I only teach online college classes. These are not remote, where we have a live component, right? These are all, those are basically invented courses because of the pandemic, where an instructor taught face-to-face, and then suddenly, instead of Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 o'clock in the classroom, as Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 o'clock in front of a TV screen, I mean, uh, a computer screen, right? So my classes technically did not change, right? The format did not change. An, on, an online class, it's funny to use the word traditional, traditional, but traditionally they are asynchronous, not synchronous, meaning there's no live component. An instructor lays out the course module by module, chapter by chapter, have assignments, have quizzes, answer emails. There actually is no requirement to provide lectures either. But I noticed early on that since the entire colleges that I've worked for shut down and everything went online, that I could not approach and design my classes exactly the same way and provide the same information as I did before. Because now I'm having students in my class, a lot of them who did not choose to be online. See, that's a big difference, right? Whereas before, those chose to go to campus, went to campus, those who chose online classes, weekend, night classes, you know, that kind of thing. So then I had students who were more prepared, technologically speaking. They kind of know the ropes. They know what to expect in an online class. So right at the beginning, I would get questions now, well, actually since last year, is there a lot, when do we meet, right? So then I knew I had to take a big step back. Another aspect of this in terms of my teaching philosophy, and this is all unscripted because I changed my topic last minute just because my head wasn't in my previous topic. Another issue has to do with academic integrity and the possibility of students cheating, and this is something I'm really in tune with throughout the years that I've been teaching online, but especially so given that colleges went 100% online. So I think because of the difficulty of adjustment and the pressure students are under, juggling everything they're, they're having to juggle and the stress, that it makes relying on online sources, sources you're not supposed to use, more attractive or more of a necessity for them. So it's a combination of those two things. The sudden change of a whole student population who may or may not be choosing to be online. How do I accommodate them? 
help ease that transition. And I felt like I needed to be more um, assertive in my interactions with students. Not, Not that sounded wrong, but what I mean is I needed to step up my interactions and the amount and the type of interaction. And, of course, we were all under a lot of duress. And I think what this past year has done is that, just like our lives in general, it made every little stressor, it kind of exposed them, right? So if your relationship was kind of rocky, then the pandemic would just, like, crush it. Sorry to be so dramatic there. Um, if your finances were sort of unpredictable, then the pandemic, you know, it's kind of like the Captain America serum, right? It's like it just sort of boosts whatever is going on in whoever you are, so it makes the bad things worse. And luckily, because of my employment and the kind of classes I taught, I was immune from the financial aspect of it. There, There was an early worry about enrollment, and whether we'll have enough students and classes to go around. But oddly enough, I had, during the pandemic, more classes offered to me than fewer. And my online experience really came in handy. But I knew I could not go on with business as usual. And I I had this debate with a colleague of mine who teaches political science years ago when one of my early employers... And it had to do with enforcing the syllabus. Like if a student comes in late for a final exam, and your syllabus says 15 minutes, that's the latest you can come in, and they come in at 20. What would you do? And I remember this example in my head as clear as day. There's a student who's basically acing the class, came in late for the final. And I remember back then the debate was, well, do you want to be respected as a as a professor or well-liked? Now, if your goal is to be well-liked, then you'll bend the rules a little bit. Let the student who came in late take the final exam. And then everybody's happy, right? But to be respected, you have to draw the line somewhere, enforce the rules, you know, kind of like tough love. And I chose tough love in that instant. That student ended up making a C in the class. And my colleague's opinion was that, you know, in the big scheme of things, what difference would that have really made for you to allow that student to take the test? You know, and we and we as instructors always use that, well, if you allow one, then you have to allow everybody, right? That was our rationale for, for towing the line, right? You can't bend the rules of the syllabus because if you bend it for one, then you lose control and all chaos goes, you know, then everybody turns into zombies, Okay, I'm tired, okay? Sorry about the zombie. Okay, so that's kind of the backdrop of pre-pandemic, right? And and I and to be clear, my classes have evolved. I'm always trying to improve them, right? Tweak it here and there, make it more approachable. I did, even 10 years ago, I made these recordings. I may have called them podcasts back then, I'm not sure, but I used them in my class, even though I wasn't required to. I thought it would be helpful. So I'm always finding ways to improve my class and never feels like I'm getting to this point where it's perfect. This is exactly how my online class should be. 
All right, so back to the pandemic. So then this pressure cooker environment, I found, oh, let me back up a little bit in terms of enforcing rules, right? Then you have the late policy, makeup exam policies, right? Someone is saying, oh, my, I had a death in the family or I was in the hospital, right? And you know how some instructors choose to say, okay, there's a difference between excused versus unexcused. So you have to provide documentation of why you're absent, a doctor's note, right? And that always felt wrong to me. Again, this is my take, and yours might be different if you're an instructor. That's okay. Um, I just felt like, should I be in that role of being a hall monitor to be sort of an attendance police? Um, do we do that in our employment, you know, in our employment settings? To, yeah, I guess sometimes you need a doctor's note if you're out extensively, right? But generally, your boss kind of believes you when you call in sick. You don't always have to provide a doctor's note. And how often are students going to lie about the grandmother being dead, right? Do we need to have them provide an ID and a, a, a photo with a newspaper cover in the front, <laughs> you know, like those hostage photos of their grandmother proving that they're alive? I don't know. So let's take a combination of all, all of those things I've mentioned, right, about the academic integrity part of it, just wanting to improve my class. And all those kinds of issues and, and about towing the line. And suddenly we're in this pandemic where everybody's lives are difficult. Should I still tow the line? Should I just say, oh, tough luck. You know, if you're a day late, it's a zero according to the syllabus. And we have to follow the syllabus. Well, I, I decided to flip this a bit because in... Two things, and hopefully I can keep my train of thought and talk about these two things. One thing that really contributed to the changes I made, and I'll talk about them later, is my daughter taking college courses. And she's about to finish her associate's degree. She just turned 18, okay? She's giving me wonderful feedback about the classes she's taking and all that. And what an instructor's doing and not doing. So I'm sort of getting like a inside view that I didn't have before because I can ask a fellow student or somebody you know hey what do you think about my class or what do you think about class in general but just having someone who's around 24 7 that I can consult with you know how in your learning management system for your instructors there's a little button called student view so you can see your course the way the students see it my daughter is the student view right so I can get her opinion at any time so I'll ask her, hey, what do you think about if I did uh, mostly essays instead of multiple choice? She's like, oh, right, she'll give me her opinion. And she's a great student. I'm very biased, of course, but she has a 4.0 GPA. Not that I expect that, but she works very, very hard, okay? Um, and she, I feel, approaches classes the right way. She wants to learn from the class. She doesn't choose a class just because, oh, I need this credit, I need an easy A, so I found the easiest professor out there. She actually chooses her classes based on requirement and interest, and she gives it a good faith you know, effort. And she has told me that, yeah, you know, some instructors just aren't there. You know, just they don't communicate. It's almost like there's no instructor there, and she's less interested in the class because of that. So I was like, oh, that's good to know. 
And I tell her, you know, the emails that I send my students, she's like, oh, I wish my professor would do that. Right? So that gives me a little bit of reinforcement. Like, oh, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. So getting her point of view has really been helpful, especially during the pandemic, right? And her being a, a new, she's taken online classes before, but she really preferred to take on campus. That was the whole reason why we came back to the States from Asia was for her to, you know, get get in the classroom, make friends and, you know, enjoy college life for a little bit before before the next step. And I said there were two parts. So one part was um, my daughter being sort of like the, the my student view. The other part was the Texas winter storm, right? And the fact that we were all, at least in this area, just all under the same umbrella of doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Well, of course, if you're poor, then you suffer more, obviously. But let's say in the neighborhood, it doesn't matter your background, but you, you suffered about the same amount, right? Your pipes burst, it's very cold, bad power, power outage. And it was during that week that I would communicate to my students, and they showed me a lot of empathy. They gave me, you know, because they're in Washington State, winter survival tips <laughs> for us Texans down here, right, for myself. And I thought, wow, that's so generous of them to be so understanding. I really need to return the favor. Now, I haven't always been that really stern, toe-the-line guy, right? That has been changing at a gradual pace. But because of the pandemic, I really focused more on my connection and communication with my students than about purely just the academic part of it and following the syllabus to a T. So I became much more flexible with the rules. You know, if a student talks to me one-on-one, -on -one, I'll say, okay, well, let's work something out. Don't ever send me paperwork. If you say you're sick, you're sick. You tested positive for COVID. That's, you know, you're, you know, I want you to be well. So it's not a strategy. I just decided to be more of myself with them. So in my email communications, I noticed that First of all, I was motivated by the fact that I had many students who were not used to being online. So I was, I was on day one, I was say, hey, this is a day one check-in. How are you doing? Day two on Tuesday. Okay, this is Tuesday. Is everybody logged in? You know, are you getting my emails? Are you doing this? Let me know. You know? And literally, I would just about email them every day. Now, mind you, it's not an individual email, right? I mean, obviously, it's a group email, mass email going out. But they receive it individually so that when they reply, it's just an individual reply with a question. And I noticed that over the years, you know, that simple request for, oh, you know, you, you as an instructor, I feel like, oh, you know, my door is open. I'm doing my part. I'm saying, hey, ask me a question anytime. But you know that as a student, it's intimidating to ask a question of an instructor. You're afraid that your, your question's a dumb question and all that, right? They're going to judge me. And so I felt like by having a more casual conversation in my emails, I would write about how I'm doing. And, and that was really came to a head and spurred on by the winter storm. I would just keep them in the process of keeping them up to date. I was sharing a little bit about my life and what's going on. And then I realized that I was enjoying these conversations because I got more interaction from students.
And while they're replying with, you know, some suggestions on how to survive cold weather, they're also asking questions about the class or asking questions about an assignment or a concept. Then something clicked. I was like, oh, you know, even though I'm online and I've always prided myself as being available to students. And of course, usually it's a handful of very motivated students or more extroverted students who are just willing to shoot emails out to an instructor. But not, not all of them are that comfortable. And so, and plus I love audio. So at the beginning of a class, I'll give them an audio orientation and welcome, right? So they know that there's a real person, not a robot teaching class, not an AI. And I think that humanization has been really helpful. And that's where my teaching philosophy has, I, I'm not going to say changed 180, but has ramped up in a more humanizing direction that what I am role modeling, role modeling for them is not just an instructor who just is in a, a rule enforcer, but an instructor as a professional who is also compassionate and cares about his students, who in turn would want to care more about the class they're in and perhaps wanting to do well in this class because the instructor cares as well, you see? So I did not intend this or any of my podcasts to be here. I'm the expert. Let me, let me give you these top 10, t- top 10 tips for whatever. You know, let me tell you how to do things. That's never my intention. All I can share is my personal experience and how I feel about them. And I really feel that this switch in how I approach my students that you know, I've always thought in the sense that when I design a class, what do, what do I want my students to walk away with? You know, five years later, would they remember anything from being in my class? And I don't think they're going to remember stuff that they're memorizing for a standardized test. I think they'll remember maybe communication with an instructor anecdotes from from my lecture podcasts, maybe a particular assignment that made them think and personalize, um, apply toward their life to make them think about an issue they haven't thought about before. And so I think our college, the colleges I teach for did a good job with the learning objectives for the course, you know, that a college decides, right, for the course that's in a standardized syllabus. And it's not about, oh, you have to remember Rogerian therapy, you have to know who Freud was. It's not about specific content, but it's more about the process. Do they understand that psychology is a science and what that means? You know, that kind of thing is a bit more broad strokes. And I like that because that's how I want my students to see the class. And And I almost want to design it like a graduate level class. You know how graduate student classes, I mean, graduate level classes are more discussion-based and you write papers. You don't hardly ever take multiple choice exams in a graduate class. You just have a stack of research papers. You go home and read them and the next week you come back and talk about them and discuss them because you want to and because it's fun and all that. And so in terms of my pedagogy, we just love that word, don't we? In terms of what's in my classes is that I've tossed 
these multiple choice exams. So this is part of that academic integrity part of things. But it's also part of my goal of what I want my students to come away with. So by taking away, so how do I keep my students accountable for the reading? Well, I have shorter sort of thinking exercises. And I'm picking and choosing subjects per chapter and not just throwing the chapter out there and saying, okay, you, you got to read all 40 pages and there's going to be 30 questions over it. And there's no focus whatsoever. And so this particular quarter, my classes have been quite an experiment. But anyway, I don't want to get dive too deep into that aspect of it. But my overall teaching philosophy is really more humanistic now. Um, when my students email me and say they're having this kind of trouble with work or whatever, and and I'm not to the point where I'm saying, hey, yeah, turn it in, whatever. I mean, that's not the point. But what I do is I work with each person to see what's reasonable. Okay, And it's up to it's still up to the student to fulfill their responsibility in the end so no matter how much of a leeway i give and how much flexibility i give in the end they still have to do the work so it's not as if i'm throwing points away at them um and giving away free a's and b's and all that okay i hope this made sense it's a very tiring day but i told myself i need to um, drop a podcast every Monday, and technically it's still Monday on the West Coast. Well, well it's almost midnight here in Texas, so I'm going to just uh, throw this together real quick and uh, drop it, and I can still fulfill my Monday obligation that I had for myself. All right, I hope this all made sense. I know it probably wasn't very linear storytelling, but I hope you got a sense of, from a tired and exhausted exhausted brain of mine, uh, how my teaching philosophy has shifted, especially accelerated during the past 12 months. And it's still going to evolve, evolve based on what I learn, what I learn from students. But what I can tell you is that after that first quarter or first couple of quarters during the pandemic, my student evaluation feedback, and especially the written part where a student voluntarily adds comments were just extraordinary. I, I've never seen such glowing um, feedback from students before. So that kind of told me that something worked. And I have a gut feeling it's because I connected with them. Okay, that's the bottom line. So if you're an instructor looking to find strategies and increasing student engagement, well, I guess the bottom line for me is you become more engaged with them. And in turn, they will return the favor and become more engaged in the class that you're teaching because you care so much about it. Okay, folks, please take care of yourselves, and I'll talk to you soon. Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast today. Can you do me a big favor? Um, just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field, 
uh, go to Apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review. Okay, And you can also contact me directly using the links in the description, whether it's Twitter or email, with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better. And uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.